0: how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today.
1: Well, the trailer shows you the hit on the head, Andy, so I feel like I'm going to call
0: that, chalk that one up as a win. (laughs) as we've learned from movie trailers it's all in selling those big moments these have been such valuable
1: moments <laughs> really i think to learn yes that's the blink that's the moment we had yeah. Uh, with the, the baseball bat to the head. Uh, and so we got a number of moments. I don't think uh, – there are a few moments that actually indicate what this movie is about. We do have the there are good kidnappings and bad kidnappings line, <laughs> which sets the stage for what this thing, this thing is about. But I think it would be incredibly difficult to – uh, have uh, this job given to a trailer cutter and and say as a result we want to know uh, of this trailer we want the audience to know what this movie is about because this movie is a whole bucket load of bananas and I, I think the trailer cutter had to just wash their hands of this because there's no way that you're going to tell the audience what this movie is about it was crazy
0: what I do love in the trailer is they actually you know the the subtitles that come up throughout kind of giving you a sense of the story yeah they have the line, "All tragedies start with her," <laughs> as if the entire thing is the girlfriend's fault, which I thought was pretty, <laughs> right, <laughs> pretty right. funny. I mean, yes, she does have this whole kidnapping scheme that she comes up with, but I mean, you know, she has nothing to do with his idiotic decision to sell his uh, kidney to this to these <laughs> organ thieves. Right.
1: Uh, be- beyond that, I don't. I don't have a whole lot to say about the trailer, uh, uh, other than uh, this. I probably would have committed, had I seen the trailer in theaters and uh, before seeing the movie, I probably would have said, yeah, I'll check that out uh, on rental or streaming. I I don't think this
0: trailer would have driven me to the theater. Maybe when it says from Park Chan-wook, director of uh, joint security area. Uh, you know that might have uh, that might have gotten me in because I I did really enjoy that film quite a bit. Yeah, but still, you're not really selling your enthusiasm with a maybe. Well, I, it's it's one of those things where it, the the you're right. The challenge with this film is it's not an easy one to kind of sell the whole concept of it. And watching this trailer, like it it doesn't tell me much about what this story is really about. It's just a very vague idea of okay. um, you know, there's some revenge going on or something, and it's called sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, um, or what was it called in Korean? It's, it's not Vengeance is Mine. Vengeance is Mine, right? So you have um, a vague, vague idea that okay, there's vengeance involved. And you you see some people in you know, precarious situations, but you don't get any sense of the story. And it is a really complicated, in a weird way, sort of story. I mean, yes, you you I guess you get the sense of the kidnapping and stuff, but it's a challenging. You're right. It's a, it's a challenging uh, trailer to cut for any trailer cutter because this is a, <laughs> it's a very weird film. And I I guess I would call this a win. You know what they put together here. <laughs> Did you happen to watch the uh, the U.S. trailer that was uh, released in 2005 when it was released here? I didn't see that trailer. Oddly, it's I, I didn't find it that much uh, more clear with the story. You know, it's uh, they just really emphasize. You know. Uh, from the director of old boy because by then the whole uh, trilogy had been out and um uh, just in a way to kind of sell sell the uh, the film better but it also is kind of that way and so I, I think that just goes to show this is a tricky film to cut an effective trailer for
1: well it, it, yeah a d- tricky film and just just chock full of crazy and <laughs> i mean crazy
0: 세상에는 말이야, 좋은 유괴가 있고 나쁜 유괴가 있어. 좋은 유괴는 부모의 협조가 필수적이지. 경찰이 신고를 하니까 아이가 죽는 일이 생기는 거야.
1: 나름대로 착하게 살았다고 생각합니다. 근데 왜, 도대체 왜 나를... This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright. That there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're in it for revenge. We're kicking off our series on the Vengeance Trilogy of Park Chan-wook with his 2002 film Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The
0: Next Real. And if you enjoy tuning in, and if you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation to our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Discord, help us pick movies for upcoming series, and listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, where we talk movies, trailers, and more. Plus, we have a battle of the lists of movies related to our show that week. In honor of this film, uh, this week we're going to be talking about uh, some of our favorite revenge films. Should be fun. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. reel.
1: Vengeance is mine. Andy, look, I, I've been trying to approach all the movies that I watch through the same eyes that you gave to Detroit. <laughs> oh, the, the five-star uh, five cutoff? Well, no, there's that, and I want to talk about that. Obviously, that is a new, critically important metric for the show, around which I think we should start <laughs> building more of our efforts. No, you said that, gosh, for a movie called Detroit... I want to see more of Detroit. Like there should be more Detroit stories. This is a story of the Algiers. There's not enough Detroit. It's, that was kind of your position. Am I sure. characterizing that right? Yeah, effectively. okay. So it, you know, I started. I was sick last week, and so I I've been watching a lot of movies. I watched uh, uh, I, I watched Warcraft. Right. Uh, our, oh, our, our friend uh, uh, yeah. Duncan uh Duncan Jones yep yeah and and I wanted to make sure and I I think that one fits the andy rule that there is in fact both war and craft uh and there's plenty of it across Azeroth <laughs> so warcraft has his power rangers there are both there 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 is power and there are rangers and there's a, a lot of it and uh so so that fits so I'm looking at this movie how much sympathy and or vengeance do we have on display in this movie and Not only is there vengeance in this movie, it is vengeance carried out upon vengeance, carried out upon vengeance. This is the Mobius strip of vengeance of this movie. It is very disturbing uh, on on a number of levels. Not just, you know, there there are sequences that are hard to watch. It's not a terribly gory movie. I mean, it's not a film that really, you know, it's got some violent things in it. That, that are hard to look at, but certainly n- not quite up to uh, the, the next film in the series we're going to be talking about. But but in this one, uh, m- man, they execute on vengeance upon vengeance. And and on
0: that point, I think Park Chen wook has really hit it out of the park. <laughs> there is a lot of vengeance in here. And it was really interesting to see, you know, in in the, I guess, the genre or maybe subgenre of revenge films exactly how they uh, how he was playing with that and especially with a film that at least here in the states is titled Sympathy for Mr Vengeance it was interesting to see well what i thought was interesting is i felt like they were playing with the whole concept of of your protagonist and you know who do you who do you root for in a film and who do you like and and when everybody in in one way or another is kind of enacting revenge who are you who are you supporting who are you siding with and that was kind of my my sense of the, that title sympathy for mr vengeance are we supposed to be sympathizing with rio as he goes on this crazy uh you know uh, revenge rampage you know because he's trying to help his sister with a kidney and so he donates his and it's a mess and so he wants to uh go after those people but first he needs the money and he, he, this whole thing with the kidnapping and then and then the the the, do- the kidnapped girl's father and his revenge you know who is really our our the one that we are sympathizing with in this film. You know, in the end, I felt like the one we sympathize with the most is probably the the father because by the end of the film, Rio has really kind of taken a dark turn and has just you know gone down bonkers row and is eating <laughs> the kidneys of, of the people who stole his. It it's it's like he he's really kind of devolved. And, um, so you're but, saying but, no more sympathy for him, no more sympathy for him. Right. No. I think, I think he ends up, um, no, but I, I, think what happened is there is some sympathy, but it's, it's not the sympathy that you would expect in a protagonist. It's more sympathy in, you know, this is a, a guy who's had a very difficult life. You know, he's, was born and, and grew up mute and now he he wants to help his sister, and he makes a bad decision, and ends up having to go down this this road, and it just and makes a mess of everything. And yeah. because of that, it 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 turns him down a dark path. And uh, you know, I I find some sympathy because he is in it in the very beginning, trying to do what's right, and so it's just it's very sad, I guess, in the end. Maybe it's more empathy by the time you get to the end. Well, um, it, I,
1: I think so. And because it, it, you start out as sympathetic for him because of the way they paint him as, you know, mute. And and in fact, the, the subtitles keep using, you know, deaf and dumb. I, and I think that's how they open it. He was, I was born deaf and dumb. And, and uh, as he's writing the letter uh, to the radio station. Uh, that she's going to have to end up kind of describing to him, which I thought was a very touching moment. So we start, we open the film at this high bar of sympathy. Like we feel sympathy for him just because of the way he lives in the world. And you think that he's making these decisions, um, you know, to go down this path to help his sister, um, that, you know, when, when a character like this does something good, uh, it is usually rewarded in film. And that's one of the, that's sort of the first surprise uh, that we get that he goes to this His backwater organ outfit from a sticker (laughs) on a urinal wall. It starts to get very confusing kind of emotionally because you had one perspective on this character and it starts to to evolve and he breaks bad kind of right in front of us. He breaks crazy right in front of us, which I think is a really interesting – it's an interesting way to play with us a little bit because – it's it's well into the movie before we actually meet the character
0: that we we end up feeling sympathy for at the end, the father. And what I really appreciated about this film and and liked is that that uh, Park Chan Wook is is taking this story in a direction where it's not it's not kind of a normal uh, story structure. We we start with one character, our protagonist, who by the time we get to the end. We really are not liking the, some of the decisions that he's made, and we end up sympathizing with this other character. Who, yeah, like you said, he doesn't come in until almost halfway through the film, and it's it's so uh, strange the way that he's kind of playing with our expectations as to what we get in a revenge thriller. I
1: thought, that and was I really found great.
0: that's yeah, I thought I thought it was really interesting, and you know, to that end, it really is kind of his girlfriend who who does. Um, push him down this dark road of the kidnapping. Because, I mean, yes, he made this incredible bungle of making the decision to uh, sell his kidney to these people, assuming that they were going to be honest and get him another kidney so that she could get the kidney she needed. Of course, that doesn't happen. And, and they leave him abandoned in, in that empty building. But it's her. it's It really is her who's just like... um. That pushing this whole kidnapping thing, and not just his boss's, you know, the, his former boss's kid, but this whole circuitous route of saying you can't go that route because it's too obvious. You have to kidnap the child of his boss's child's friends. <laughs> <laughs> what was that right? Yeah. the child of his yeah the boss's friends who whose kids they they play together, and you know that way. It's They can't trace it directly to you. It was like nonsense logic. The whole thing was so silly. That whole conversation where I didn't even get what was going on the first time. When I looked at it again, I'm like, oh, okay, that's who... Jung Jin is he's the friend, he's the boss's friend did you
1: did you have to go back and watch that the the sequence where the kids in the car to figure out who which little girl belonged to which man like i had to watch that three or four times to to figure out what are they trying to tell me here
0: i um i watched it once and then i watched it with the director's commentary and they helped clarify exactly like who was who yeah. and what because the first time i'm like wait a minute i don't understand who they uh, like for for the longest time, I was convinced that they kidnapped the boss's daughter. And so that's something that I think um, the way it, it, it's a really interesting way that that Park constructs his film because he does it in a way where he really makes you have to work for it. You have to really struggle to make sure you are are following all the little bits and pieces. It's not like a simple Hollywood film where all the pieces are laid out nicely for you. This is a much more complex story, and um, I probably would have gotten it on a second or third watch and go, oh, okay, now I see what's going on. Or you just really have to pay attention. Is that a problem? It can be, you know. Um, Well, it certainly can for accessibility, kind of approachability for the film. I mean, it narrows the audience. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, he even said as a director, I think this unkind way of presenting the story makes the viewer more active in watching the film. It may irritate some viewers. I, I think he is, you know, essentially actively trying to make something that isn't going to, you know, follow the expected path of kind of that Hollywood storytelling, but make you really have to work for it. Um, I I do like that he he really pushed it. And Even though I was really confused, and I I think I would have gotten it on subsequent viewings, I do wonder if um, it was as effective as it could have been. You know, I think that maybe after a couple more films, he would have been even a stronger storyteller and found a way to do that where we understood it right away i like this movie
1: i really do i mean i i had a good time with this movie but i also i feel like there is there's a certain amount of permissiveness that a director has to give um, an audience to kind of come into this world and this movie is not very forgiving
0: uh, and, and i think that's just an important thing to be aware of especially after um, his previous i don't know if it's directly his previous film but joint security area you know i had seen that and i felt it was a very enjoyable, very straightforward sort of film. Maybe, maybe it wasn't quite straightforward Hollywood, uh, but it certainly was a fairly uh, linear story. And I, I got it. I understood everything going on and I, I walked out of it really enjoying it. This film, and this was his next film a couple of years later, was um, a more challenging watch. And it, the fact that he, really was pushing us to to play with our expectations of what we get in revenge film and who we follow and how the story unfolds i mean i really do appreciate it i definitely do but yes it may have been to a fault in some particular points as we found it wasn't as clear as it probably needed to be and that makes it frustrating. You know what's interesting though, is uh, you know on the the almost direct
1: flip side of that point, I think he it was incredibly efficient in both in crafting the script and and in how it was shot in actually taking a lot of small characters and giving us just just the right little bits of information about them to make them feel like more robust participants in this world. Um, you know, we have little things like the girlfriend um, Duna Bay, uh, you know, her character um, th- that she's this anarchist and she's handing out these flyers. So when the father shows up to their house to order her apartment and hooks up the electrodes to her ear, she says, you know, I'm part of an organization They're They're terrorists and they'll straight up kill you. And, we later hear the police say, "Well, no, I mean, she she was a part of a terrorist organization of one." But it turns out that was exactly what was <laughs> happening, and and I think that that was a, uh, you know, the, the, the that this terrorist organization actually was real. It. it, it it allowed us to to learn a lot about her uh, it, you know very quickly. Um, the One of the police officers you know we're talking about in our deep scene dive tonight ha- takes a call, and it turns out the voices on the call, they're talking about the same thing that the movie is about, right? This sort of uh, organ donation. You know, every one of these characters has this one extra layer. That we get about them through a, a bit of dialogue or a side scene or a line tossed to the side that gives us a really fascinating look at at who they who they really are, um, and and it makes these characters in a what could otherwise be a, a rather convoluted again kind of unforgiving narrative uh, have have greater depth and and I really appreciate it then.
0: Well, and and kind of it gives us a sense of a lot of the absurdist way that that Park Chan Wook. And his writers look at this world, right? You have um, this really kind of dark story that also has some strangely humorous moments scattered throughout and the way that they the way they tie those through. And then you have these shots of like you only see their their uh, apartment neighbors a couple times. And the first time it's the four of them all stroking off. As they're listening to the sister uh, in her kind of moans of pain, um, while they're mistaking it for the sounds of the neighbors having yes. sex, it, and it's, it's just like weird just and strange little moan. Yeah, it, it's just it's so shocking to see the, that the, like,
1: the, you know what's so the, interesting though andy how often do we come away from a sex scene in a movie and say hey that sex scene was great and i think this sex scene was great they end up having uh, a, a conversation about their relationship in sign uh while they are having sex and right. uh, I, I actually <laughs> it was awkward and funny and uh you know it was not portrayed in any way, shape, or form is as sexualized. Uh, <laughs> right. it, it was just as it, practical. I mean, they were clearly enjoying themselves in between this conversation that they were having. But um, I, I actually thought that now that that's a sex scene that that gives us something. It teaches us something about the character more than just a parade of of
0: flesh. Yeah, they. I mean, they do a really good job of finding the way to balance moments throughout the film. I mean, another example is the way that uh, the the father deals with the two autopsies that he goes to. The first time he goes to an autopsy, uh, it, it's it's for his daughter, and he's just you know breaking up, and it's so. And it, we're only looking at him; we're not seeing anything, but we're seeing his reactions to everything that's happening and it's just painful and it's awful and it's shocking. And it's, you know, as a father, it's just, it's just horrifying. You can feel yourself in that situation as he's trying not to completely just break down into a puddle. And then the second time it's after he discovered Rio's uh, sister buried under the rocks by the river and he's watching it and he's just yawning. (laughs) He's like, he's no longer, you know, seeing anything about these people it's all just about kind of you know more clues to get closer to revenge and it, it was really interesting the way that they played with the um the subtle comedy and sometimes the really absurdist comedy in this really dark story well uh, you know the absurdist comedy
1: of the the um uh disabled fellow that right kind of wanders around the the water uh, which was both terrifying uh, in, in on one hand this is the uh, the, the first time I think we um, uh, we see him uh, is I think this is the first time we see him is when the the young girl falls into the into the water accidentally but the way it's shot the way it's presented is that you th- you think that this this disabled fellow is um, has has some sort of hand in it uh, I, And I felt tricked right and and not necessarily in a bad way i mean i felt tricked that uh that you know it wasn't more than an accident and uh i thought that was a really great scene but later this guy comes up and he's he's you know uh, moving rocks as uh, as he's trying to bury another character in the in uh, along the, the banks and and he's just always either in the way or, or kind of moving around and each character has takes a turn it's sort of you know pushing him out of the way or dodging him or scaring him or spooking him or something and i found it a, a really interesting um i don't know kind of a metaphor for welcoming to end of life right i mean it's just a very awkward place and everything that happens in this set in this in this setting uh it has something to do with end of life and um you know whether it's actively you know dying or burying a a character and sending it on um to to another way and and so i found it really i i don't know it was hard to laugh but i i couldn't help but laugh in some of these sequences
0: well and i think that's what uh that what park was really going for that may not have exactly worked. You know, I, I, I think it, it was harder one for audiences to really connect with. And um, it, it just I it may have taken people aback as they watch this. And they're like, am I supposed to be laughing? Why is this, you know, it's some dark, serious stuff. And then all of a sudden these absurdist moments. And I don't know, for me, all of that worked really well. Like I liked that balance that they had because it, it kind of let you kind of relax a little bit from some of the darker stuff that was happening. It, in a, it was still kind of darkly humorous. It wasn't just like flat out funny, but it, there was a darkness kind of, a, 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 and, and there was a darker subtext to it. And I, for me, I thought that it was done really well. What do you think of, of sound? I, I want to hear you talk a little bit about sound, because sound is, is very important
1: when we have our, at least our initial, we'll call him our initial protagonist, Ryo, is, is mute
0: and, and how they handle sound uh, from when, whenever we're working with his perspective. Well, that was something I really appreciated with this movie, is how they played with sound to um, to both emphasize his muteness, and also just to allow us into this rich world of sound that really he never gets to hear. I thought they really played with it in such great ways. They have um, some fantastic editing choices with the sound. One example that really um, stuck with me was pretty early on in the film when he's talking to the doctor, or I should say the doctor is talking to him about the fact that, you know, he put down the wrong blood type and he can't donate his kidney to his sister because he's a type B. He's not the right type. And it's, it's a really great scene early on in the film. But then as the doctor is talking to him, we cut outside of the window where it's raining. And we see, we see Rio as he's, as he's kind of watching the doctor's lips, reading his lips. Um, But we don't hear anything. We just hear the sound of rain. So it's, it was, a really interesting example of jumping farther than we normally would jump to. We're not just over the shoulder of the doctor as Rio's watching his lips. We are actually outside the window and we're not hearing anything, which is really exciting because now we are essentially in the same place as Rio. We can't hear anything. And, you know, if we can't read lips, then we're out of luck. It made for a really interesting example of them playing with the whole idea of sound and what it means to a particular character who is mute and can't hear or speak. And the way that that was done, we, we, uh, when we were talking about snatch with, um, uh, sound recorder, uh, Michael Coffey, he, uh, talked about how, you know, it's frustrating for him sometimes to watch scenes where the, the way that they cut the cameras and the way the sound design plays, the sound is always perfectly clear for the audience. It doesn't change with the cuts. And while I can see why, you know, filmmakers largely are probably going to keep it where people can hear it because they want to hear what's going on. I found this a really good example of exactly what he's talking about, where this is a director who's using sound to really put us into the protagonist's head. And when we jump to these places where all of a sudden we can't hear anything, that's there's a really good reason why. I, I
1: totally agree, uh, you know, practically, I absolutely agree and, and agree with Michael and that was a uh, – that's a great point. I thought the very same thing. I also think it's a great example of how this film is unforgiving uh, because it's a shock. It's a shock as soon as you are – you're listening to something you feel like there's something you need to hear and yet it, it you are then taken away from it uh, you know another movie that kept coming into mind with that sequence was the diving bell and the butterfly you know where we are so deeply locked into this one character's perspective that when you know when people walk in and out of his field of view uh, both you know obviously we can't see them anymore we can't hear them anymore and that, that our whole dynamic changes that kind of stuff goes on in this movie and i think it's very effective for this character um uh, and and i also uh, am glad that more
0: directors are uh, uh tend to be more gracious <laughs> right right because this it was challenging like you said yeah. it's, it's a very unforgiving way to tell a story
1: and, and i don't mean hard, like challenging hard i feel like it's it's exhausting right i mean maybe that's the better word for it it, it is an exhausting thing sort of it it's a this is a high calorie burn movie uh, in in terms of intellectual ca- calories right <laughs> to kind of keep pace with it anyway go ahead
0: well not just not just you know for reasons like the way that they're playing with the sound but also just the way that he cuts the story and tells it i mean it yeah. It really works like I mean they're talking about this whole kidnapping of the kid all of a sudden we cut to this park scene and they're like playing hopscotch or or some one of these like little weird jump rope games that you play and and his girlfriend is singing this song as the sister and you're doing this thing communist communist, song right but then all of a sudden the kid comes in and it's her turn And it's like oh so they already did the kidnapping and here they are just kind of playing with her and stuff. And it it took me a minute to really kind of sort out what was happening and the fact that this was the kidnapped girl and they already had gone through with the kidnapping. It, it, It really is making you work hard to figure out, oh, okay, the kidnapping itself isn't important at all. Here we are. Post kidnapping. And now they're just dealing with the repercussions of the fact that they have this kid now, which is really so beautiful because this is not a caper movie. It's a
1: it's in the title. It's a vengeance movie. So we want to focus on the things which come after. Right. And and I think that was just I I was really moved by that choice to to eliminate the kidnapping altogether.
0: Right, yeah, it was it made for a really fascinating way to kind of move us through the story. And he does that quite a bit as he's telling the story. Right before our deep scene dive, we have the moment where uh Rio is looking at the dead girl's body in the water. We see his face in shock the fact that this just happened we cut to the girl and we see her dead body in the water and then we cut back but it's not ryo anymore it's Jung Jin, as he is now looking at his dead daughter's uh, body in the water and we've had a huge time jump after you know this whole thing has been discovered and the police have come and the father's been notified and now he's out here and he sees her body in the water for the first time it's it's a really interesting way to kind of condense time and move us through the story that much quicker. Really effective use of
1: camera. It, it, I, I think the so much of the strength of this movie, you know, if you're having trouble with the narrative, let yourself go and just watch how they make your eyes move. Um, there, there's a lot of, stre- of strength in shot composition.
0: Yeah. All through the film. It's just really brilliantly thought out. The compositions are clearly designed as we're watching um, whether it's just the way the, the characters are looking into the camera as as the not really breaking the fourth wall looking into the camera like we were talking about in some of our musicals but this is really more just the the way that they've chosen to frame it as if you know we are this mute person who really has to look at somebody and read their lips um, to just the close-ups that we would get of like the red thumb after he's doing his termination contract or the silhouettes passing the windows and, and the way that the, the, the shots, the, the window frame changes as he's kind of going into the kidney thieves lair or, or that sideways shot of the rose on the ground when he wakes up. I mean, just all through it really fascinating compositions and using the camera in an effective way. I noticed that there was a lot of long shots throughout the film, which was really nice to just have this sense of long, still shots where we didn't necessarily need the movement. He allowed things to happen within the frame and it makes moments like when he wakes up from having his kidney removed and he's left barren and naked in this in this uh abandoned building you get this fantastic moving shot where the camera just moves back so fast it's like this handheld shot as it they basically run back from his body it really makes that stand out and hit you that much harder because all of a sudden it's like whoa oh wow we're getting some movement here really effective
1: yeah and and, you know i i think one of the um uh, just Incredible compositions is uh, you know happens in the elevator when they have this at the the point where, that we sort of join the the shot we have a whole bunch of, of of authority figures right police and medical personnel in the elevator we have Ryu and we have this uh, a, a stretcher and a body is is strapped to the stretcher and Ryu doesn't know who the body is uh, it turns out it's actually Young me and the when we have the sheet falls off of her head and we have this two shot. On on their head. And then we go down and there's a and and he reaches under the the um, the the sheet and grabs her hand. And it is both. Oh, my God. Gross. Like that. that It feels very awkward and strange and also so loving. And and uh, uh, I think really
0: highlights the conflict that you feel sequence after sequence in this movie. Absolutely. That's a a great example of a shot that um, just I I found so incredibly touching. And uh, I know that uh, that was a shot that uh, Park Chan-wook was not sure if he should actually include because he was worried that that uh, people would find it kind of comical that here he was kind of holding the dead girl's hand. But uh, everybody convinced him to keep it. And I, I think rightfully so. It really, for me, was a very poignant and powerful um, kind of goodbye for, from him to her. Yeah, I agree.
1: Uh, we talked about the literal uh, translation uh, the, of, of the film, but this was not the original title of the script.
0: Yeah, I guess when they uh, first uh, were working on the script, the title of it was The Destroyed Man. They felt it was a little too past tense, I think, is what uh, what he said in the commentary. He was looking for something that was a little more active, and so yeah. that's where the vengeance is mine came from. So it's funny. The more we talk about it, the less I feel like
1: vengeance is mine is is an appropriate title either. I, I thought when I first read it that oh yeah, that's much better than sympathy for Mister Vengeance. But I, I'm
0: I'm not sure that either one of them really works. Yeah, it's a tricky. It's a tricky story. It's a tricky thing to title. I I kind of am partial to the English title because. I like this idea of this playing with the concept of sympathy in a revenge story, and I felt like uh, after I had watched the film and thought about the title, it gave me more to really reflect on as far as what my expectations were walking into a revenge story and um, and the fact that if you watch any other revenge story and you see you know this this person take revenge on somebody, um, you know, and, and they're the protagonist and you feel good. Like, yeah, they got them and stuff, but you're looking then in retrospect, you look at it and it's like, gosh, that was a pretty awful thing that just happened. And here I am cheering them on. Um, I, I really appreciated that this title gave me pause and made me really think about what does that mean when you're looking at a revenge film and what is the sympathy for? Right,
1: right. Uh, Well, speaking of sympathy,
0: let's do the deep scene dive. Yes, let's.
1: We are in the van. We're in a van. We're on uh, in a crime scene. We are uh, witnessing a conversation between uh, Park Dong Jin, who's the president of this company and the father of young kidnapped Yusan. And we are uh, he's being interviewed by Lee Yun, who is the inspector uh, of the police department. Uh, why'd we pick this scene
0: yeah this is it's it's right uh, pretty much the at the midpoint of the film it's about 56 to 59 minutes in the film this is when the inspector is talking to dong jin about do you have enemies uh, you know trying to get a sense of what's going on the fact that he didn't call the police when his his child was kidnapped. Why didn't you call the police? Oh, I thought you know this happened more often, and the kids were returned fine when you paid up. It, you know, it is really interesting the way it's it's it kind of sets up a sense of who this character is, and this is really largely our first chance to spend a good bit of time with Dong Jin as, after. Um. After we kind of see him, just a couple of fleeting glimpses of him pre kidnapping. This is our chance to really get a sense of of this person, and uh, it's it, what I found really poignant and powerful and interesting about this scene is that it's it's largely one shot where we have um we're looking kind of th- through the car and uh, through this van and we you know with the, both the sides open. And we're really focused on the inspector. And all we see of Dong Jin are his legs, and the rest of him is kind of blocked out by the body of the car. And we hear his voice, and it's this raspy, broken voice of this uh, of this father that you know has been weeping and screaming and so upset about everything that's happened, not to mention tied up and kidnapped, right? I mean, that happened yeah, briefly right. before this, where he <laughs> he was left tied on to the top pole. of this this place. Tied to a pole with a bag over his head, screaming for help. And here we have this really interesting moment where we just get this broken voice of this man who um, is just utterly devastated because his daughter is dead. And it it creates a really interesting world. But what's interesting is it also, as you pointed out earlier, sets up this whole idea of this inspector. Also having this life outside of what's happening here, he gets a phone call and he takes it kind of outside of the van and we hear him talking about a situation largely similar to what's going on where he doesn't have the 10 million uh, uh, won to pay for whatever... Procedure it is that his son needs. Yeah. You know he's. He, I can't remember how he ends it, but he's just like, "Hey, at least at least our our kid's not dead in the lake." Or <laughs> right, right. That's so horrible. It's a, a uh, real uh, officer sensibility, right? Yeah. Uh, which spurs Dong Jin to kind of get up and walk out of the vehicle. um But it it just it really portrays this this sense of this world and the pain that Dong Jin's going through. Yeah, I, I thought that was really important, and I, I think the, you know you describe the
1: framing of the shot. I think the framing of the shot is also, you know, really important to the narrative, to our, certainly our narrative of Dong Jin, um, that that we don't get to see him, that the the focus is on the the police and the police investigation, uh, and and that he is kind of pushed out, uh, you know, literally pushed out, figure figuratively pushed out through this interrogation, and literally pushed out of the frame. Uh, I, I think is, is really telling and sets up the second half of the film as his half of the film, right? This is – now we know that he is – you know, we have a better sense for the fact that he is the one that we are going to feel sympathy for even as he becomes Mr. Vengeance, right? And, and I think that's a – that th- this marks an important transformation. You know, I couldn't get out of my head the, the scene from uh, The Wire – Uh, In the first season where the two officers go to this apartment, this crime scene that's been checked over and over and over again, but they have to check it uh, again, uh, check some new material, new evidence, whatever, uh, or they think they're going to find something that the previous officers didn't, and they do the whole uh, scene Saying the F word to, to right. one another, right? It, it's legendary uh, wire work, and and it's been talked about over and over and over again. I have the same kind of feeling for a number of, of in a number of areas in this movie where I feel like I, I, w- I would have a better sense for what was going on if my Korean were better, right? If I could turn off the subtitles and really just listen to the language, because uh, I feel like the The economy of language in this script and and in this scene uh, make it so that you know there is a lot going on that you miss. If if you don't get the precision of words that they're saying and uh, because how they're saying it and understanding the intention of what they're saying is so important. And so I feel like this is one of those movies where that that extra – the veil is still down uh, a little bit. And this is one of those sequences where you feel like uh, really understanding where the father is and where the inspector is and where the inspector is related to the father and, and the cultural uh, sort of understanding of one another – uh, you know, clearly there is an issue around, you know, net worth and, and classism and, um, you know, all of these questions that come up that, that are both logical questions to ask if you're a police officer and if you don't have a lot of money for a very important procedure, uh, you might be feeling a bit bitter. Uh, in that sequence. And so it, there, it's just, it's f- full of complexity that I think is, is deceptive and, until you stop and slow down and really just watch it closely. I, I love this sequence, uh, both as a pivot for the film. It's a turning, major turning point, obligatory scene for the film,
0: uh, but, but also as a, just a nuanced bit of performance. I, I completely agree. This is uh it, it's a real interesting actors moment. Like the way that the actors get to portray the scene, I found exciting and, and uh, done really effectively the way that, um, that uh, uh, the director puts the framing together and decides I'm going to tell this whole thing for show this entire conversation from one shot um, until, until uh uh, uh he gets out of the car and walks away um i thought that was really exciting um the uh, kim byong il did the camera work I, I thought it was just really effective uh effectively done here um likewise just the way that uh, that kim uh, j byom and kim sang byom do the editing and cut this together i, I found really effective plus the sound ma- sound design uh, that kim uh chang siop does i mean it's 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 done so nicely through this sequence it's it's simple but it's deceptively simple and i think that's what i found um worked so nicely here because sometimes in the film it's much more uh in your face with, with some of those kind of the the difficult choices that that um not difficult but um difficult for the audience as as park makes some decisions as far as how he's telling the story and constructing it that makes it more challenging for us as viewers to get into. This is a moment where they take that uh, simplicity in a way that it it just it it's hardly noticeable, but it's done so effectively. I also just wanted to just reiterating, um, we've talked about Song Kang Ho um, in our show before um, when we we're doing our Bong Jun Ho series. He was in uh, both uh, Snowpiercer and The Host. And uh, he's been in uh, a number of other films and a lot of great films. And it was really nice to see him pop up here as uh, as Dong Jin. Um, I thought he was, for me, um, really the highlight of the film. I mean, yes, we do end up sympathizing with him more as we get to the end. And I don't think that was really the reason that I I found him so compelling more than anyone else. But I I just I, I find him a really engrossing actor to watch.
1: Oh, I do, too. And and I think it's interesting you say that, like, uh, we do, I guess, feel sympathy for him as the father of the of the dead girl. But he's also his vengeance drives him to be not a nice guy. Like, we, yeah. and that's sort of the complexity of
0: our relationship with him. Like, we are feeling sympathy for a guy who's not a good guy in this context. But he is the one who and granted uh, Rio can't speak, so he can't say any apologies or anything. But at least, at least before uh, before Dong Jin uh, essentially kills uh, Rio, yeah, he kind of has that conversation with him. I know you're a nice guy, but I have to do this anyway.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know? I
0: mean that that feels really, uh, I I don't know, authentic. <laughs> it did. I, I totally bought it. I totally felt like he was really he it pained him to do this because yeah, no, you're right. I don't you're think right. he I don't think he had gone down the dark road that Rio had gone down. Uh I, I felt like Rio after after his girlfriend was killed, I think he turned down a very dark corner when he decided I'm gonna go after the the kidney people, I'm gonna kill them, I'm gonna eat their kidneys that was that was dark yeah that was this, truly this dark. Guy who, but yeah, and, and it
1: was especially because the kidney people were mother and son kind of an outfit oh,
0: that was that was a very awful. shocking thing to learn like yeah. oh mom and son uh, that's mom. pretty horrible <laughs> yeah that was pretty <laughs> As good son is over here uh screwing the uh the <laughs> the drugged out body oh, of the person whose organ uh, they're stealing right now oh geez really dark Really dark, this movie in oh, some places. It's yes. really dark. Oh, yes. Uh, so, anyway, uh, anyone else in the cast that uh, stood out for you? Well, I mean, you, you know, I just want to bring up Duna Bay again
1: because uh, Bay Duna. Uh, since it's a Korean film, uh, she is the, the girlfriend and the anarchist and she's wonderful. And, um, you know, we remember her from, um, you know, films that we love so much, the English language films you know, like uh, Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending. I know it's is a really popular film among our audience, <laughs> uh, but she, she was in those. But she's also, uh, you know, she was in The Host, uh, which uh, consistently splits you and I. Uh, in it, our yes, chart making, so uh, it, she's just—I think she's delightful—and so um, it, it was fun to see her in such a crazy part.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I loved her in this. She was um, such a, a weird, um, just a, kind of off the wall, crazy—you uh, know—breath of fresh air because of uh, just the the insane revolutionary side of her. I had so much fun with her as a character, even when I was like, "She's such an idiot! Why are you listening to her right. <laughs> about this kidnapping?" Oh goodness gracious! But no, I, yeah, she was great. Um, I I really just enjoyed the cast. You know, I you, you, I thought that um, uh, the young girl who plays you son, uh, Hanbo Bay, um, really. I mean, I would have a hard time as a as a parent letting my child be in a movie like this yeah. because it's so shocking. Um, but I felt like uh, she was she had this real great sense about her, and sometimes I really struggle with kid actors, but I liked her quite a bit.
1: Well, and and the portrayal of her as dead. It was tough. I mean, almost every sequence when she first died, when she's floating under the water, the the shot of her on her side with just her eye, uh, uh, you know, above the surface of the water, right. is uh, iconic from this movie. And then, of course, we watch her burn uh, in Ugh. the cremation, and it's it is horrifying. And we really, I mean, just a close up of her hand and her doll. But my goodness, that's all you need. If, yeah. if, if, honestly, you needed that at all, uh, it, it's a it really tumultuous sequence.
0: Also, I found really fascinating about her as a character is that it, in this world, we end up getting her coming back as a ghost and talking to her father and having this really amazingly uh, tender moment between the two of them. Um, and she has this line that was so funny to me. Uh, that, um, but funny in a way that was like uh, that painful um, humor. That you know, there's such honesty in it. The way the kids say things, and she says, "Daddy, why didn't you give me swimming lessons a bit earlier?" <laughs> oh my God! Oh, like, oh, oh, Andy, yes. That oh, that is. <laughs> if that's uh, not the
1: the central line from the movie, I don't know what is.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, it just it said a lot about about that entire uh, situation and really that uh, you know because her death is really an accident um, it really it really speaks so much to uh, to the whole thing about uh where this film's going. So it was, it was really, really quite an interesting line and made for a really touching scene that, and I love that it was included because it's such a strange thing to all of a sudden have this ghost thing. She disappears from the photo and then here she is in front of him and he gives her a hug and she had drowned. So of course her dead ghostly body is all covered in like, you know, water slime and, and she's completely wet. And later when the inspector is over at his house, He sees a puddle on the floor and it's like, is that, so was that real? Was she really here? Did he just happen to spill some water on the floor? What's going on? I don't know, but it made it that much more of a rich world for me. Music was by the Uh Uh-Oh Boo Project.
1: Can you say that, Andy? (laughs) What Uh is the Uh-Oh Boo Project?
0: I don't know. I guess it's just a few guys who, or a few people who created this group the uh boo project that did the music for the film and um wow i it's not a it's not a film score i would listen to but in context of the film i found it worked really effectively there were moments um where it just kind of kicked in i, I can't remember the specific ones i want to say one of them is around the autopsy of his daughter and it's just like this really discordant like uh, crazy jazz music that's playing that just it, it just for me captured the the painful raw emotion of everything going on. Um, and all the way up through like the the music that plays at the end when we build, you know we see that the the crazy shot of the that final moment as as Dong Jin is dying by the river and he's looking at these body bags. Uh, Or these bags of body parts of Ryo that he has there. And then you have this other music. The music worked so effectively in the film. Uh, I just was completely impressed with the uh, Abu project and what they brought here.
1: I think it's funny that you discovered the Korean
0: version of the DVD actually released a black and white version of this movie. I thought that was such a fascinating little tidbit to learn. And, uh, you know, I have become quite a fan of that type of uh of film release uh ever since i saw the mist oh, oh i would watch this movie in black and white I, this oh, seems, that seems absolutely great yeah it was uh a, absolutely a fantastic tidbit to learn and i was so jealous that this film i guess it just didn't do well enough in foreign markets to it didn't do well enough really anywhere to warrant that much of a push um, but, wow, this is one I would love to see in a really uh, pristine Blu-ray in black and white. I, I would, too. I, I think this looks really, really great. How did it do an award season? Well, th- this type of film is not a huge award winner, but it did find some, uh, some success. It did get seven wins and one other nomination. The wins were uh, primarily over in Korea at the Busan Film Critics Association. It did win Best Film and Best Director. And at the Korean Association of Film Critics, it won Best Director and Best Screenplay. Over here in the States, when it played at Fant- uh, Fantasia Film Fest, it did end up getting Best Asian Film. So, you know, it it had some success, but it was really limited to kind of specific markets, I suppose you can say. Now, it, it, it's part of
1: the vengeance trilogy it was this is another one of those unofficial trilogies that became an official trilogy just because people willed it so um but it's not directly uh prequel to anything that comes after it
0: no and it's uh, well that's my sense i mean i've seen old boy um i haven't seen lady vengeance but my understanding is none of these are connected except thematically and some actors do appear in multiple uh, films but as different characters so i don't think you could ever say that they are in a sense kind of sequels or anything now old boy has already been remade uh terribly um is this one on deck uh you know i was surprised because it it seems like such a tricky film to tell through hollywood's eyes but, apparently, back in 2010, uh, Warner Brothers uh, acquired the rights to do an American remake of it. They attached um, Brian Tucker to write the script, and it was going to be Lorenzo de Bonaventura and Mark uh, Veradian, and uh, they were going to be uh, producing it. I, uh, that was 2010. I have heard nothing since. My hunch is, especially because of the, um, the old boy um, remake not getting as well received yeah. I don't think this is actually going to happen now
1: well I'm, I'm I stand relieved a little bit because this is one of those movies that I think uh, I think it deserves to be seen as the original
0: yeah I agree
1: it'd be tough to remake this one how to do in the box office
0: well Chan-wook spent an estimated four million dollars uh, on this film um, I'm not sure what that means he spent in South Korean won when he made it back in 01, but that's the rough US uh, figure, which is about 5.36 million in today's dollars. The movie opened in South Korea on March 29th, 2002, where it did relatively poorly. Actually, the reception meant that it didn't get much of an international release, and it wasn't until August 19th, 2005, when it finally had a very limited release here in the States, where it opened on just six screens. In competition with the 40 year old Virgin, Red Eye, and the animated film Valiant. The movie earned a paltry $45,374 here in the US and $1.9 million everywhere else, giving it a total gross in today's dollars of $2.4 million. That means Chan Wook's trilogy started off with an adjusted loss per finished minute of almost $23,000. Not a great start for his trilogy. That's really disappointing, especially given how I just feel about this movie. It, it deserves to have made that much money, not lost that much money. You know what's funny is hearing him talk about it uh, in the commentary. He does seem uh, he seems surprised, but he also is just like you know I just don't think people got the you know there was supposed to be funny moments. You know I was trying to throw in some comedy here, and um, I, I don't think people really got it and they just no no one laughed when they watched it yeah i i I felt like it was i mean you know he made a challenging film and i think that people were challenged to a point where they're like you know what i don't want to be challenged this much when i watch a movie i just want to go into a revenge movie and watch it but i i feel a little sad about that because i really enjoyed this movie um, I felt like I got more out of it after listening to the commentary and really kind of hearing more about it and what their intentions were and everything. And I thought that I felt like going in and doing another rewatch or subsequent rewatches that I will just continue enjoying it more and more. I, I find him such a compelling director and watching this film, I was just thrilled the entire time with the fact that I was in the hands of a filmmaker who was really actively trying to do something unique with his film.
1: I absolutely agree, I, and uh, you know, I had a great time with this movie. I I feel like I am very much looking forward to watching Old Boy again because I feel like I, um, you know, I, I understand sort of its its spiritual place in the world, right, in terms of moving from where we are. This week with vengeance or revenge into violence next week and 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 I I, I, I get the spiritual connection between these these uh, three films so I'm I'm excited to see how um, how that connective tissue plays out um, but I'm with you I, I, it really surprised me that I liked this movie as much as I did because I was baffled most of the time uh, my <laughs> my first watch through and I still walked out saying wow I, I need to watch that again that's amazing. That was amazing. So yeah, really uh, this was a good watch. Uh, I What do you think? Is it time for us to rank it? I think it is. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can see our stack rankings of all the films we've talked about on this show. Or you can just swipe over in your show notes, tab flickchart. It'll take you to this very movie where we can uh, you can add it to your list, and we can see how it stacks up
0: against ours. Andy? First up, we have sympathy for Mr. Vengeance versus the girl with the dragon tattoo. Mm-hmm. Which one? Uh, Oh, sorry. This is uh, the new me. I,
1: uh, this is unfortunate. I I think I'm I'm going with Dragon Tattoo.
0: I I feel like I've seen the Dragon Tattoo film in the various versions enough where I'm kind of done with that story. (laughs) And I feel like I'm actually going to go with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance here. Okay, you've swayed me. (laughs) <laughs> your your rigorous <laughs> debate. I'm done with it. I'm <laughs> done with it. Yeah, you you win. That's fine. Uh, I, I rest. Love it. Uh, sympathy for Mr. Vengeance or live free or die hard. I'm going with Die Hard. Yes. Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance or Beverly Hills Cop. Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Uh yes, I agree. Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance or the Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz for me. Okay. <laughs> sympathy for mr vengeance or star trek nemesis i uh, okay i'm just gonna say again i know this one was better than everybody says i agree i I, i'm gonna say nemesis yeah me too although i i feel wrong about that but i am gonna say it anyway (laughs) sympathy for mr vengeance or about a boy oh definitely about a boy oh about a boy sympathy for mr vengeance or the prestige the prestige for me yeah i'll say the prestige Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance or The Abyss? The Abyss for the me. The Abyss, yes. Mr. Vengeance or Mother? Oh, a little uh, Korean uh, film wow. matchup. Uh, I'm gonna I, s- <sighs> wow. I'm going to say Mother. Mother was so weird. <laughs> I am also going to say Mother. It was terrific. Well, that leaves Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance at 129 on our chart. I think that's a a pretty good spot for it.
1: Yeah, I think so too. It's interesting. I it it actually, I, I think it fared better. What is that? What does that give it as a, a percentage? That's a sixty three percent. Well, yeah, interesting. Uh, okay, so on mine, it hit three seventy out of ten fifteen, uh, which puts it at sixty four percent. Now, oh wow, well,
0: yeah. Uh, how did do on yours? Uh, mine ended up at eleven sixty six out of thirty nine thirty two, which is about seventy percent. Interesting. So yeah, even higher.
1: Even higher. So if if I were to if I was to listen to the algorithm, uh, I should be rating this as a three star, a solid three star on Letterboxd.com slash the next reel. I think that's too low uh, for how I'm feeling about this movie. I'm not sure if it's a three and a half or four. Star film for me.
0: If it helps, this is a four-star film for me. It does help. I was it, does, I was yes. completely invigorated and just thrilled by the wacky world that I was thrust into, and the darkness, and just the way that that Park Chan Wook constructed it. I had an amazing time watching this film. So absolutely is well, four star. Andy.
1: I'm so glad you brought up four stars
0: because I feel <laughs> like we need to have a different kind of discussion now.
1: it just did not make it to five star so I would like to know where in the film you would have had to turn it off and just stop watching for it to remain a five star movie this is the most absurd (laughs)
0: ranking system we've ever we've ever attempted I I love it though that's it, it's a really a tough question too because I I should have been thinking about that while I was watching it I know I wasn't really I feel like it would have um it starts off I think in enough of a confusing way where I don't think it would have been a five star right out of the gate because it took me um, it took me a long time to figure out what was going on with it because it starts off your your. Looking at like a close up of the the radio DJ as she's reading his letter to his sister, and then we see them and we kind of see flashbacks and everything. It just made for kind of a uh, I like I had to look at it a couple times. Like, who am I looking at? Why why is this person in a voiceover booth? What's going on? It took me forever to figure out what was happening. So I I, I felt like the construction at the beginning was a little rough. So you're saying really? I mean, if it were going to be a five star movie, it's
1: you know, in the first thirty seconds, yeah, I would have I, to I, just bail.
0: I would have. It, I, I felt like that. Uh, that some of the open would have had to been a little cleaner, uh, in order for me to uh, really be connected to it as a five star film.
1: I, I I was a little bit more forgiving about the open. I you know when it, when I would have been super satisfied with this as a film as if we'd ended on the kidney story. And, like, I, I really could have ended as a five-star movie with him uh, waking up on the, on the floor of the abandoned construction site nice. um, and, and just, you know, wake up shocked and, like, boom. Then we have an Alfred Hitchcock-style um, guy tries to do a good thing and fails, and this is the price of, of no good deed goes unpunished. That's a, that's a <laughs> solid little five-star parable, parable for me. Uh, so... I'd I'd leave it at that. I don't actually remember kind of where that was in the film, but certainly in the first half.
0: Right, right. What a huh? silly, silly way to talk about it. <laughs> it is. It is. I
1: love it. I just <laughs> love it. <laughs> here is to next week. With uh, where do we go from here uh, for the next uh, next part of the trilogy?
0: Yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be jumping a couple years, talking about uh, 2003's Old Boy that he did, uh, and uh, um, it's going to be. A fun one to revisit. It is the one of this series that I had seen before, so I am looking forward to rewatching it and uh, reliving that uh, wacky world.
1: My memory of it's pretty good. I hope I'm not uh, hope I'm not dismayed.
0: I I doubt I will be because I remember enjoying it quite a bit. And if anything, it will be a great way to kind of cleanse my uh, myself of the the pain I suffered watching Spike Lee's remake of it.
1: Yes. All right. Duly noted. <laughs> the next reel could not happen without the hard work of everybody who is involved on this thing. That includes all the guys on the film board. Uh, Tommy and, and uh, JJ and, and Steve Sarmento and, and uh, the great Stephen Smart runs the Instagram program. Ben Sterick helps out over there. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter and the Blot Spot. And, of course, the next reel theme, Ragtime Instrumental, uh, is, uh, performed by Eli Catlin, which you can find on his soundcloud page thank you everybody for downloading listening you know the drill when the movie ends our conversation begins Amazon giveth, Andy, as
0: Amazon always doeth. Oh, Andy,
1: not a lot of
0: reviews <laughs> on this movie. Um, not as many as as we would have liked to have no. uh, been able to choose from. No. A lot of five stars though. A lot of five stars. Uh,
1: yeah, I think it was a healthy healthy amount. I mean, it's a, the in terms of just distribution over 50%, roughly 53% yeah. uh five star review. I of course went straight to the bottom as we are wont to do. Uh, and and would like to open the bidding with a zero star uh, review. Take it away. Of course, you know you can't have a zero star review on Amazon, but Got to Be definitely thinks this quote deserves zero stars. This movie was excessively hard to follow in efforts to appear quote artistic and painfully slow to sit through. It takes more than an hour before any vengeance is taken. And even then, the emotions behind the revenge are so convoluted and unclear that whatever message the movie was trying to convey is lost. I wish I didn't waste two hours of my night watching this train wreck. Now, I adore that because I feel like it's in line, Andy, with the way you reviewed Detroit. Do you see how we circled (laughs) back here? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a movie about vengeance with not enough vengeance in it <laughs> and it comes too late this vengeance
0: uh, uh, that's fantastic i how do how we're gonna keep bringing that circling <laughs> well, around i think that's we... a deeper well than maybe you ever intended <laughs> i think it's going to be well i've got a, a two-star two-star uh by harkinwar anand who says this is ridiculous are people comparing this to Old Boy? Old Boy was flabbergasting. It delivered an invisible slap of surprise on the watcher's face. Mr. Vengeance fails miserably at creating any sort of effect whatsoever. The storyline story is a bit challenged, if you ask me. There's no real feeling of revenge, and most of the time the screenplay with characters coming in and going out creates confusion. It took me a while to understand what's actually going on. I watched this 40 days back and can't even recall what happens in the end. What's even more confusing is that I've known to have a prodigious memory of mind, or at least I claim to. In any case, absolute what? bollocks of a movie. What? Watching experience.
1: I'm sorry. I mean, we need a judge's ruling. I don't usually like to interrupt just right in the middle, but Andy. That was the
0: end of it. Anyway. I I'm know. He, uh, he has a prodigious memory of mind, or at least he claims to be. <laughs>
1: Who remembers? Who remembers time in blocks of forty days? Unless you're <laughs> Noah, I think that we've kind of given up measuring time in forty days.
0: <laughs> Noah and Josh Hartnett. They're the, <laughs> they're the only two. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> Audible.
1: Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season seven, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations.
0: <laughs> nice. I own this game. We shall see.
1: Here we go, starting with an easy one, the Millennium Trilogy.
0: <laughs> Seriously? The girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl who played with fire, the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. Die Hard. Uh, well, Die Hard 1 and 2.
1: Except Nothing Lasts Forever, which is where Die Hard came from, isn't on Audible what crime of the century okay 1968 musicals uh mary poppins nice we've covered a lot of great movies
0: that started as books books like east of eden giant or all you zombies upon which predestination was based so many great movies from so many great sources and they're all on audible
1: producing this podcast is a lot of fun but takes a lot of time we've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection
0: to our content Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it.